Welcome to the Shutterbug Life Podcast. If photography is not just something you do, but who you are, this is a place for you. In this podcast, we talk about everything you need to be, do, or have to reach your true potential. Let's celebrate the creative photographer's lifestyle with your host, my dad, Linford Morton. Hi, welcome to the Shutterbug Life Podcast. This is your weekly photography lifestyle podcast where we learn how to be better photographers. I'm your host, Linford Morton, but of course, you can call me Lynn. This is episode 57, and today we're going to discuss how your camera sees differently than you do. That's right. That's one of the biggest adjustments I think people make when they when they start shooting is you see something and you think that what you see will be what you get when you depress the shutter and take a photograph. And that is always far from the case. And good, great photographers, I'm going to say great, yeah, great photographers are the ones who understand how the camera will see and interpret what they see in front of them differently from the way they see it. And they'll know how to make adjustments so that they can create what they want to, what they see in their heads, rather than what the camera will just give them as a result of what the camera sees, because the camera sees differently, of course, right? So this is what we'll talk about today. Now, this is a prequel, if you can, if you will, <laughs> or sequel, or what? yeah, prequel, yeah, that's it. I am going to be continuing this discussion, or, or at least replicating it as a webinar. I wanted to do this topic as a as a free photo webinar, uh, like I used to do back between 2010 and 2014. And uh, I didn't get around to it, but I thought we could at least begin the discussion here. And I could talk you through, through some of the changes. And I think you can sort of get it. And then if you sign up for the webinar, when I announce it, uh, which will be shortly after you, you hear this, then you'll get to see lots of visuals really explaining the, the, the principles we're t- going to talk about today. All right, so that's what we have in store for us today, seeing like your camera sees. <laughs> Okay, so today we will learn how to see like your camera sees. And as I said in the opening, one of the biggest frustrations for many photographers is when you take a photo and it looks nothing like the scene in front of you and nothing like the way you imagined it would look. And the fact is your camera just sees differently than you do. And once you learn how the camera sees, you'll find it much easier to create photos just about anywhere. Now, I'm going to give you five ways the camera sees differently than you do. And then I'm going to talk about just some sticky situations, some some scenarios where you ought to just be aware that it's not going to be as easy as you think it is to take the photograph you want to take. All right. So let's let's go through the the five. Now, here are the five ways your camera sees differently than you do. Number one is your camera doesn't know what's important to you. And so it makes everything look the same. 
Now, when I do my my photography workshops, you know, one of the things I I, I like to do is so, so we're, we'll be standing um, in front of the Lincoln Memorial, and I'll still I'll just point to a sign just so under you know a little bit in the distance and say, "Hey, guys, you see that sign there?" And everyone will turn and they'll look at the sign. Now, behind the sign is usually the reflecting pool if we're at the Lincoln Memorial area. And so I'll say, hey, you see that sign there, the one that says the Washington Monument this way, this thing, and, and it has directions to different things. Everyone will go, yeah, 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 we see the sign. Okay, great. Now turn around and look back at me. And everyone turns around, and they now they're looking at me again. And I said, what color was the shirt of the guy who was sta- you know standing behind the sign? And everyone looks puzzled. What do you mean? Well, when I said, look at that sign... Standing right behind the sign was a guy, and it's usually someone wearing, you know, a loud color shirt or sweater or jacket or something. And I said, you know, there was this guy standing right behind the sign. Did you did any of you notice him? And almost without fail, everyone looks puzzled and go, no, we didn't notice him. We were looking at the sign. And so this demonstrates the first way the camera sees differently or doesn't see Because when I say, hey, look at the sign, guys, everyone turns around and they see the sign and they see only the sign. They don't see anything behind it or beside it or across. They don't see anything else because when you do that, your brain gets involved and it helps you focus and helps you lock in and it cuts the clutter for you. But when you take a photograph now, if I were to say, okay, now take a picture of that sign, there'd be no way that anyone would miss the person standing behind in the green sweater or jacket or whatever color they're wearing because the camera makes everything the same. And so everything from what's directly in front of you to what's two miles away from you will all be shown at with the same level of importance if it's the same size in the frame. So the camera doesn't know what's important, so it just shows everything in front of it. Now, when you look at something, you know what's important and you know what you're looking at. And so this is the first frustration many people have is they'll look out and they'll see something and think, that looks kind of cool. I'm going to take a picture of that. But when you take the photograph, what happens is the camera takes not only the thing you saw, but everything else within the frame and shows it to you at the same level of importance. And so now your job as a photographer, your work is then for you to uh, decide what is going to be the most important thing and make it so that it's impossible for anyone else to miss. Because, when you, t- of course, when you take the photograph, it will show everything the same. And so now you have to undo that. So this is why it's always important. And I we always start with, the, you know, this is a picture of a what. Because it's extremely important for you to know what your subject is before you take a photograph. Before you pick up the camera, you have to ask yourself, this is a picture of a what? And decide what that one thing is and what that one thing is that will so you will make stand out and make the most important in this frame where the camera is going to try its best to, to de-emphasize it. You have to now make it important again. And it's essential then if number, if if the first thing it's important for you to do is to know what the subject is, 
it's not enough for you to know what the subject is. The, the next thing is, it's essential for the viewer to be able to tell what your subject is after you take the photograph. And this is the tough part because lots of times people will look and they go, oh, I know what the subject is. And they'll take a photograph and they'll show it to someone else and we won't know what we should be looking at. And nine times out of 10, if you take a photograph and someone is going, eh, and they're underwhelmed, it's because they can't tell what your subject is. And it might be because you didn't know what your subject is. But even if you did know, you didn't do a good enough job of making it impossible for me to know to, to, to making it almost impossible for me to miss what your subject is, you know? So it has to be that there's no question in my mind when I, when I look at a photograph you've taken, what I should be looking at first. And, and you can make, you know, people will push back sometimes. No, it's okay. I can have a more abstracty, blah, blah, blah. Or I can have, I can have this, you know, great landscape picture. And I'm going to tell you once and for all that it's all hogwash. Yes, you can. Because again, these aren't commandments. You can break them. But if you have a photograph where, where the one point where I'm supposed to look is is so obvious that I can't miss it, and there's one where I'm not quite sure, I'm going to tell you nine times out of ten, if not ten times out of ten, most people will prefer the one where it's obvious where they should be looking first. So it's important for you, you to know what that is, and it's essential for my, your viewer to be able to tell what it is even after you take the photograph. Now, the thing about this is sometimes you walk up and you'll see something that looks like a really interesting um, scene, landscapes, you see this, uh, street street scenes. Lots of times you'll walk up and you'll see some, something that looks really interesting, but all it really is is a background waiting for a subject, okay? Now, you'll know this because when you look at this, you're like, wow, this is really cool. I see repeating colors. I see this. I see that. All these great things, but nothing is really jumping out at me. And it's in those times when what you want to do is wait for a subject. And a lot of great photographers will wait for something to ha- else to happen. Um, I was, you know, looking at this, and I'll link to it. This Henry Cartier-Bresson, you know, is walk, looking through his pictures, and he talked about finding a scene and standing there and waiting for the right moment and the right thing to happen. In our community, you know, one of my buddies, Steve Rosenbach, who also leads the New York group with me, he, he's really good at this. He will find a background. He'll wait for someone to come into it because he knows, of course, that without it, it's just elegant wallpaper. And, and what we really need is something to, for the eye to lock in on because without it, the camera is going to make everything look the same and nothing's going to look important. And it's going to lead to a blah image. So that's number one. Your camera doesn't know what's important to you. Number two, the thing to know about the way your camera sees is that it's in 2D. Now, this is one of those, you know, blinding, flashing, obvious, you know, things to say. But in when you're actually shooting or working, you miss it. <clears throat> so here's what I mean. So one day, I think the other day, I was walking somewhere at night and I saw sort of like a string of lights, almost looking like like Christmas lights all in the same color, like white lights. And, you know, they were sort of moving away from me. So they were where I was, and you know, they were sort of stringing and moving away and away, and it, and it looked really beautiful. And I thought, wow, that's so cool. But then I thought, 
I can't take a picture of this even though I wanted to. Well, I could. It would take some work. But what I knew is if I stood, hoisted my camera, and took a photograph of what I just saw, it would not have the same impact as it had for me standing there and looking at it. And why? It's because I am looking and experiencing it in 3D and the cameras are going to flatten the whole scene. So these rows and rows of lights that are moving away from me will all look like they're on the same plane after I take a photograph. And and there will be no appreciation for the fact that it's actually moving away from me and not all just in a line. And so this happens all the time. You will see something and it will look interesting, but then you don't stop to think, what happens when I flatten this landscape? You know, this is huge for landscapes because you stand on the top of, you know, on the side of, you know, a mountain range. and You look out over this, you know, rows and rows of mountains and it looks, it's just breathtaking. And you're like, wow, this is so beautiful. But when you take a photograph, it's going to squash all that into one flat 2D image. And so knowing that... Part of your work is then how do I recreate that sense of depth? And, you know, lots of times this is why we would shoot things on an angle, especially flat subjects. You shoot, for instance, a house or a building on a 45-degree angle so that you can see lines moving away from you and see and get the feel that there is some depth here. Because without it, it will all look flat. It's the reason for that your landscape photographers are always persnickety about layering the image, having something in the foreground, having something in the middle, having something in the background, because without it, it looks flat. I can't tell how far something is from me or how close it is because there's nothing there to give me any context. It's everything is flat. Your camera sees in 2D. This is another reason why we might use depth of field, because depth of field is also designed to help us create a sense of depth. So if I'm looking at that that string of lights and only the one closest to me is in focus and the ones moving away are progressively more and more out of focus, ah, my brain can say, I know that one's close and, and the others are moving away from him. And you can do that with anything that you use selective focus for. This is why that tool is just such an important, um, you know, tool for photographers because it helps us separate what's in the foreground from the background and then and indicate to the viewer that there is depth here. That's what we call a depth of field. So the camera sees in 2D, and you've got to layer, you've got to move the eye around the frame, leading lines and things and all the other uh, composition tools that will help you do that. It helps you recreate that sense of depth that you lose when the camera shoots in 2D. So you've got to know when you walk up into a scene and you look at it, you you have to think to yourself, how will this look when it's flattened? And knowing that, what do I do to recreate and reintroduce depth to this this scene? Okay, so that's number two. Your capture, your camera will only see in two D. Number three, your capture, your camera will only capture one specific nanosecond in time. Okay, one moment, and we. You have to pick the right moment or we're going to be lost as to you ever look at a photograph and you go, I don't get it. What's going on here? I don't know why you took this. Why am I looking at this? And it's often because it's the wrong moment. 
So, you know, what do I mean by that? You, you remember Henry Cartier-Bresson made a big, uh, you know, made a career of talking about the decisive moment. And one way to think about it sometimes is even though you're capturing one slice in time, you're using that, that, that moment as a bridge to move your viewer through time. And when you really do it well, you catch the moment that lets me imagine what happened before it and anticipate what might happen next. So I, I'm going to do a little you know, um, imagining here, but if you capture the, capture the right moment, when I see, for instance, there is this really you know great, and when we do the, the webinar, I can show you some examples of this, but there is a great uh, photograph, and it's one of the... the um, <sighs> One of the images, what are the ones you get bigger, you get the award, Pulitzer, thank you. A Pulitzer Prize winning award of a woman pushing a baby through a barbed wire fence as they were escaping, they were refugees escaping, I forget which country. But if, as you see her pushing the baby through the fence, you can imagine what came before. She came, you know, running there, she's trying to escape. She's pushing the baby through, someone is taking it. You can imagine that someone took the baby from her. And, and and so you can imagine what happened before and after because of the moment the photographer chose to freeze in time. So if you're really, if you're really thinking about now, how does the camera see, you're also thinking about the, the timing. Like, when can I take the photograph so that not only do I see what's happening, but I, it's also serving as a bridge to help me imagine what happened before and what might happen after. So photographers will will also will sometimes wait until the height of the action. At the height of the action, in many cases, when something is going on, the height of the action, the height of the emotion is usually at that crest is usually where you have the best point where someone, you know that, you know, that they're there and you know what's coming next and you can, you know, imagine what happened before. You see this a lot, for instance, in in sports photography, for instance. Let's say I am taking a photograph of of someone riding a motorcycle and going into the, you know, jumping over, or jumping a ramp and going into the air. When they're at the highest point in the air, this is the height of the action and the height of the emotion because the emotion's on their face. But also when they're there, I know that they had to have, you know, gone up somewhere and I know they have to come down somewhere. And so this is an example of you catching that moment in time when I I can imagine what happened before and I know what's going to come. I can imagine what's going to happen next. Sometimes photographers refer to the point where having a photograph where you can imagine what comes next as, as gesture. Um, gesture, like I can, I can only imagine or I, or am drawn in with curiosity to wonder what might happen next. If you can capture that one specific moment in time, then that's your decisive moment. And that's the one time you're looking for because the camera won't be able to capture what happened before or after. And if you're trying to tell the whole story in one image, then that's what you're going to have to do. Now, your camera, number four, doesn't know what you want to say. What do I mean by that? 
I might walk into, okay, for instance, last week we took a trip up to St. Bart's in New York City. We did a meetup there. And that's St. Bartholomew's Church in Manhattan. And we go in, and all of a sudden, when we go in, it's really dark in there. It's really dark, and there are not a lot of lights. Now, as a photographer, I can, if I had my tripod, I could create my settings so that it looks like it's very bright in there. But I don't want to do that because... You know, I want to say that it's dark. And so the camera's inclination might be to expose this in a way that makes it bright again. But I want to say, you know, this is a really dark place and it's solemn and the candlelight really, you know, stands out and illuminates the room. And so I might then need to expose it so that it shows that it's this dark because the camera doesn't know what I want to say. The camera doesn't know what I'm experiencing. It's designed to, ex- to expose everything at 18%. And, and if it's dark in there, 18% might make it much brighter than it, than it looks to you and feels to you. Here's another example. I go into the Lincoln Memorial and inside the Lincoln Memorial in the big, um, in the big chamber area where Lincoln sits, there are two things there are two senses you get when you go in there. First of all, one is that this is a huge place. It's just huge cavernous place. And the other thing is Lincoln is pretty big. I mean, you see him on in, in when you look at all these models or replicas of TV and you don't get a sense of how huge the structure is. And so you might want to do a couple things. You might want to show how big Lincoln is by showing someone standing in front of him. Because I don't know how big it is until I see something else I recognize next to it. And so when, you know, someone walks and stands and looks up at this giant structure and I can dwarf them by comparison, now I can say Lincoln is big. And the reason you might want to do this is because the whole chamber is huge. And I might want to really talk about that, too. Like, look how huge this place is. And I might want to back out and use a wide-angle lens to show how huge this place is. So there are two things. The camera doesn't know what you want to say. You go in and, and, and you take in the place where you are, what you see and feel and experience, but the camera doesn't know that. And so now you have to look for other ways of providing clues to communicate, to communicate what you're seeing because the camera doesn't know what you want to say. So five, the camera can't see the full range of light to your eye sees. And, and meaning when you walk outside and you are standing and looking at the cherry blossoms, for instance, because that's coming up soon in Washington, D.C., we're standing on the, on, the, on the edge of the tidal basin, we're looking at the cherry blossoms right in front of us, and we're looking out beyond it at the Jefferson Memorial on the other side of the tidal basin, and we see both in all their magnificent beauty, but the camera will not. Because the camera can't see the full range of light to, light to dark, and you have to know that when I'm standing here underneath where I am underneath the tree, there's a shadow falling onto the flowers. And on the other side of the the tidal basin, which is like a little lake area, for those of you who don't know it, 
there it's out in bright sunlight and so while i might be able to see detail out out there in the bright sunlight and underneath where i am in the shadow the camera won't capture both and so now your job is to decide which is going to be most important to you and expose for that and know that you will potentially lose the other Meaning if I expose for what's in the shadow, what's outside in the sun is going to likely overexpose. And so I might look for ways to, to, to not show as much of it. Or if I expose for what's outside, what's under the shadow will likely be underexposed and look more like a shadow or a silhouette. And so you have to decide what's most important to you. Or if you decide you want both, then you have to, to now ink introduce more lights to help balance them. Meaning if I'm exposed for what's in the sunlight, what's in the shade, I've got, then I'll use my flash or some other way of introducing more light and then in doing so balancing the two. But as my eyes see them, I won't be able to capture it. And so you want to keep that in mind too, that the camera won't capture exactly what your eye sees in terms of the range of light to dark. Now, other thing you want to remember when you're shooting is your camera is capable of lots of different viewpoints. We are used to walking into any scene or any situation, seeing it at eye level, and then moving on to the next thing. But the camera is going to be most efficient when you shoot that last or not at all, meaning this is what everyone is used to seeing. And so what you want to do is take the camera out of that range and put it very low or very high to the left, to the right, get extreme angles. You know, I see, we say in, in travel that you want to try and shoot every scene at least six different ways, and that will force you to see it in ways that you might not have considered because the camera is capable of doing a lot more than you are used to seeing. You're used to walking and seeing something at eye level and experiencing it there and that being enough. And for your camera, that will not be enough. Now, I told you we'll talk about some sticky situations. And these are sometimes you will see something and because you understand the way the camera sees, you know that this will either be an impossible shot or one that will require work if you want to make it happen. Now, I included the second part because, you know, my inclination is sometimes when I see that a shot requires too much work is to, I'd say, I just pick a better shot. Like, I'll, I'll find something else that's a better subject to shoot. And I was listening to a photographer a while back, and he talked about the fact, he said, you know, that leads to lazy photography sometimes. Sometimes what you ought to do is go into that situation and try and work to make it right, which is which is good practice because if you ever decide you want to shoot professionally or or go out there and start you know, you know, using a shingle, you know, having a shingle out and making money as, as a photographer, your clients will almost never want an ideal situation. And so the skill of taking bad light or, and, or bad situation and, and making it work for you is a very good one because you will be, you will use that skill probably so much when, if you decide you want to, um, work as a photographer because because this is without a doubt what always happens the client always wants to shoot in the worst possible light in the worst possible location and they want you to make it look like national geographic 
Okay, so, so, but if not, just just know that there are some sticky situations. And one that I almost always see without fail is is people wanting to focus on something that's just too far away to make it stand out. Do you remember the first one we said, the camera doesn't know what's important to you? So sometimes I remember when I'm teaching workshops and we're in this busy part of town called Adams Morgan and there are, you know, you know, lots of colors and, and, and lots of things going on there. And I would say, okay, choose a theme of something you want to photograph. And I'm surprised at how many people will say, I like the roofs of the buildings. I like the cones on top of, on the rooftops of the buildings. I want to make that my subject. And you go, oh boy, because you're going to have a tough time because because it's so far away from you, your work will be, how do I make this stand out? Because I'm going to have so many, with a, with a typical lens, which most people will have, you're going to have so many other things in the frame that you're going to have to make this roof stand out as, remember we said, it's essential for the viewer to be able to tell what the subject is after you take the photo. And at that distance, it's going to be really tough to do. In fact, probably one of the few ways of doing it would be to get a long enough lens so that you can zoom in and crop out all the other things that might be distracting. Or if after you've taken the shot, going home and physically cropping out everything else. Because the more other things in the, that you have in the frame that are different from what you want me to focus on, the more I'm likely to wander off and see those things, unless they all work together in harmony to move my eye back toward the place where you want it to be. So for instance, something like this, you you might, let's say you turn it black and white and everything else is gray and the, the rooftop is the only pure white thing or the only pure black thing. Now it's easy for it to stand out and draw the eye there. But without that kind of ability to draw a very stark distinction between that and everything else in the frame, it's going to be an almost impossible shot to shoot. So often I say, pick a different subject, pick something you can get close to. Because the easiest way to make something stand out is just to walk over and get close to it and fill the frame with it. Because once you fill the frame, you've signaled that, oh, because this has the most real estate, this is what I should be looking at. So something that's too far away is a sticky situation where you might have to find another way of making that stand out or trying to get close. So if you can't get close and you can't make it stand out, then you'll have to crop or just pick a different subject. One of the more popular ones is just a background that's just too cluttered. Because there's so many things going on in the background of a potential shot, for instance, you ha- you're taking a picked photograph of your friend, and behind your friend, there is there are orange cones and construction going on and signs and all kinds of things. If you have those things in focus so that I can see them, without a doubt, my eye will start to wander and begin to you know check off all the other things that I notice. You don't want them taking inventory of all the other things in your shot other than your subject. And so the work then is to say, okay, how do I now get rid of that? And often the the, the solution is as simple as moving your body and your camera to a different location where you have a different background. Or going down so low that you shoot over the background or going high and shooting down low so that you shoot, you know, down low beyond the background because if you shoot straight on, you're going to get all this clutter. 
And if you can't get rid of clutter, then you will, without a doubt, ruin your shot because you want a clear subject and you want to make sure nothing else is distracting you from that subject. This is sometimes why people might go black and white because because something of a bright color in the background is potentially distracting. And there's nothing you can do with bright orange if it's behind, you know, a subject that's wearing muted blue, because that bright color will always draw the eye away. And so sometimes you either have to crop it out or, or just, you know, mute, mute the colors a bit. So a cluttered background you want to pay attention to. Remember we talked about the fact the other sticky situation is that your camera can't see the full range of light to dark your eyes sees. And so that when you have a situation where a subject is very different from everything else in the background in terms of light, meaning you have a very dark subject and everything else behind the subject is very bright, like a backlighting situation, you know that you're going to have to do some work or just change your location. Or the reverse is true. If everything else is dark and you have a bright subject, the camera can't see both. And so you're going to really work hard at trying to make that work, or you can just, you know, find a different location. The last thing I'm going to leave you with is you always always want to remember that the camera is is just a tool. It's a vehicle. And, And, you know, so often as photographers, we get caught up in the kind of camera we have, but really it, it's it's just a tool. The camera by itself can't see what we see. It can't feel what we feel. It can't communicate anything. It's just a tool. It's like the microphone that I'm speaking into right now. You know, it can't tell you anything I'm thinking about. All it can do is convey my voice to you. And the camera is the same same thing. It, it's a, a tool for you to convey your vision, to convey what you see, think, feel, and it's a can way to even share your voice in air quotes. So remember that. And because so often I see people when they come out to shoot, they the first thing they look at is the camera. Meaning we walk up to a, a scenario, a scene rather, and I say, okay, what are we going to do here? And someone will look and someone will say, okay. And they start looking at their camera to change their settings. And I'm like, well, what are you doing? You can't change the settings until you know two things. What? One, what you want your subject to be. And two, what do you want to say? What do you want to create here? You've got two things that you have to decide first. And once you've decided that, then and only then can you begin to change settings. And then the settings you need to choose will be very obvious because you know what it is you want to make stand out and you want to know what you want to say in the scene. And so there you have it. This is, I think, one of the one of the skills that will serve you best as the photographer, knowing the limitations of your camera, knowing that it can't see what you see and what you see will not be what you get. And knowing that and knowing then how to take that, how to take that and make decisions so that your camera will show you what you want to create.
That's right. We are going back to New Orleans. Every year in the spring, we take a photo tour down to New Orleans. We take a weekend and see the best of what is truly one of the unique American cities. I thought it'd be fun if we went back again in October because there's there was so much interest in people who couldn't get on into the April trip that we're going to go back in October. So from October 6th through 9th, we're going to go to New Orleans. And on these photo tours, we get a little bit of everything. We photograph the French quarters. We go out and photograph um, cemeteries, you know, the cemeteries that are above ground. We photograph the bayou and alligators and wild boar. We photograph... uh, the old historic neighborhoods. We get a wide variety of so many different kinds of things. And the only place to get it is in New Orleans. And during the month of March, you can get in if if you're one of the first two people for one of the early bird rates where you save 100 bucks. You want to learn more, go to phototourneworleans.com and you will be able to learn more and register at the early bird rate. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for joining another episode of the Shutterbug Life podcast. This is episode 57. So if you want to find this on the show notes, you can go to shutterbuglife.com forward slash podcast and look for episode 057. It should come right up if you put it in the search bar if um, you're getting to this long after we're done. The other thing is if you are listening on iTunes, you can subscribe there as well as on Stitcher. And when you do, I'd ask you to just leave a a review and let everyone know what you think of the podcast. You can go to iTunes directly by going to itunes.shutterbooklife.com. And then finally, if you want to be a part of this community and make sure that you don't miss another one of these episodes, then just go to shutterbooklife.com forward slash subscribe. And there with your name and email address, you can make sure that Every time there's a new episode, you'll get an email from me as well as uh, blog posts and other things that can be helpful to you in your photography journey as you work on being a better photographer. All right. Thank you so much. And if you enjoyed this, tell somebody about it. Invite somebody else into the community. You can find us in between episodes in the Shuttlebug Excursions uh, Facebook group. That's just go to fb.shutterbooklife.com. It'll take you straight there. And with the request, I'll let you right in. And if you're in Washington, D.C. or New York City, you can join the meetup groups there as well. All of these links are on the show notes. Just go to shutterbooklife.com forward slash podcast and look for episode 57. All right. Thank you again. And you have a great weekend, a great week. And whatever you do, enjoy your Shutterbook life. Take care.